the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour three today. It is great to have the band back together. Uh, the Honorable, twicely Honorable, Hugh Hallman is back from uh, Travels in Europe and is in studio with us, former mayor of Tempe and now uh, honorary council, counts, consulate. Consul, just the consul. Honorary consulate consul. would be the building. Uh-huh. Yeah, honorary consul to the country of Kazakhstan, and here with his son, Lewis Holman, who is the managing director in, of Insight Analytics. Uh, Lewis uh, carried um, the boat, carried the load for us uh, for the past couple weeks. It's nice to see you. I also want to publicly uh, acknowledge the event that uh, Lewis and I were both at. We spoke a little bit about it last um, last week when Lewis was here, the uh, Kazakhstan cultural event that you had helped uh, put together and orchestrate and manage from afar from Europe. I, I, I tell you, um, what I said to Lewis, I'll say to you and the audience on air, I get it. I get it. This, this, not, only, not only was the music fascinating and the clothing, of course, interesting culture, simply the nicest people I have, kindest, most decent people I have ever met from outside the United States. I've never met a nicer people, and I've met delegations and such from other countries and other continents. The nicest people in the world, Hugh. The well, nicest people to be around. Made me and my own state feel like they were hosting me. The hospitality. It is. The, the, the society is based on the notion of uh, hospitality, that when you lived out on the steppe uh, and had your cattle and sheep and horses and uh, your family... You had to be completely self-reliant, but also very respectful and understanding of those who might come visiting. And uh, it is a Kazakh cultural tradition that uh, you are not allowed to ask a stranger a question until they've been in your home for three days. No kidding. And the entire notion of that. Now, the, the historical piece that has been troubling and the reason I ended up engaged was the Soviet Union fell apart. But what the Soviets did to the Kazakhs, uh, specifically murdering about a quarter of the population uh, in the late 20s and early 30s, starvation and other things. But also it got so bad that that part of the culture fractured a bit. And so the stories in those time of troubles of families not helping and how devastating that was is a cultural sort of problem, uh, I think, still exists today. But I ultimately what got me so involved was that self-reliance is reminiscent of the founding of this country. The people who showed up here on these shores and had to make something out of uh, the wilderness and did so were a special kind of people. And that self-reliance pulls with it philosophical notions on which our entire country is based. And when I got there at the fall of the Soviet Union in February of 1993, I met people who were eager to get what we've got, and not in the sense of material things, in the sense of a stable society that's free, that is uh, uh, open, 
the opportunity to succeed at one's own doing. And those cultural notions uh, come from that ancient history as well as that whole idea that uh, they are about um, being good hosts, and uh, that uh, I'm glad you feel that warmth because oh, that's I felt what I it. felt there. I felt that's it. That's what and, got and me involved. And then I saw a bunch of them at the teepee uh, a few days later, so hopefully yes. they enjoyed that part of our culture, and I think we'll segue into that in just a moment. But you may remember the old Olympia beer can. Uh, the motto was, it's the water. And I've thought about special countries like ours. You remember it? Uh, special countries like ours, it's the people. It's the people that make this place so great. And on this, Frank Sinatra's 109th birthday, his song, The House I Live In, he concludes at the end of what is America to me. Most of all, the people. People were beautiful, Hugh. So thank you for sharing them with me. Long way to get to that. Thank you very much. And, and uh, that is, I think, the subject of our prior shows many times about our concern over the cultural uh, yep. basis for our society is at risk because we do not pass those things on through the bloodstream. We've got to hand down to the next right. generation the philosophy and the cultural pieces that tie us all together. And we have failed to do that for a couple of generations, and we are seeing the results of that. Not that we're going to end up uh, remarking on your monologue too much, but your monologue in the first hour, brilliant, is really giving some light to and voice to the challenge that our major universities, all of our universities almost, uh, frankly, are feeling, and that is that for uh, several decades now we have filled those universities with people who do not appreciate the cultural bases here, view the uh, American experience and what it's come to as uh, inherently racist. Uh, the same is true for all Western traditions. Uh, and that's a, yes, I know Lewis a broad brush, but that fundamentally is the issue here. That without passing those understandings, those th- those philosophies, those lessons on to the next generation, we are at risk for losing the entire enterprise. Yeah, Lincoln, and this will be the segue, Lewis. I know you you were you were on uh, had some other issues top of mind, but I think they actually do relate uh, quite quite well. And I'll I'll throw it to you in just a moment. But a lot of this um, is the kind of thing. Surprise, surprise that Lincoln was wrestling with in the 18, well, certainly as early as the 1830s, but quite rap, quite quite noticeably in the 1850s when you saw rises of things like the Know Nothing Party and he was say and witness to those things that his phrase was in a letter to Joshua Speed, our progress towards degeneracy is rapid. And I think one might say that sadly about this place too, which might lead us to something that's been on Lewis's mind. Well, before I pivot to the the degeneracy that's been on my mind, which I will spoil a little bit, is uh, in regards to border security and the ongoing fentanyl crisis, I, I, I did want to comment a little on what you were saying. And I, I, I think it ties really well to what we were discussing uh, last week in that uh, American exceptionalism is, not, is nothing to do with the the air that we breathe it's not it's nothing to do with the land itself that we live but it ha- has to do with the the values and the institutions that we as people create and propagate which is fantastic because it means that uh, uh, American exceptionalism is is something that then is not it's, it's not conquerable right you, you can't occupy the US and, and and simply defeat it it has to be driven out with uh, out of out of our, our, our hearts out of our souls but there's a there's a 
side to that coin as well in that the unique vulnerability of it is that we ourselves can stray. We ourselves can can find alternate values. And if we aren't careful and if we don't safeguard and steward the the legacy that we've been given, then we risk losing those gifts can, and and shattering that 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 inheritance. Can I can I stay on that just a second? That's fascinating the way you put that. It's about our hearts and our souls. And is that not indeed what we're always talking about seem to be talking about a lot lately, especially when it comes to academia and driving the notion of American exceptionalism out of our hearts and souls, changing our dates, systemically racist, all of the blaming of America first kind of elimination of the Western canon stuff. It is depriving us of our hearts and souls. And, yes? and it does come back to something that, that is at the, the intersection of, of the academy's right. mission, not only to inform and to create an intellectually rigorous society, but also to be the, the focal point and, and the locus of the moral, philosophical, and spiritual development of that society. And one of the things that, that I think that we fail out as moderns is that last part of the, the academy's mission in that we have a very materialistic uh, interpretation of the world and that we emphasize teaching fact rather than thinking about how to create minds able to navigate the complex world that those facts create. And uh, th- This is another thing that we, that we talked about where uh, in last week we, we, we sort of discussed the divergence between uh, fact and values mm-hmm. in, yes. that, in that um, – knowing all of the facts of the matter doesn't teach you how best to navigate them. Our universities have, 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 I think, brought us culturally and civilizationally to the point where they are trying to inundate us with facts while moving farther and farther away from the values of how we navigate those facts. Uh, Right. As a statement against your own business's interest, it's almost the elevation of the methodological, right, over the philosophical. All all of this was properly caught up as you started with, with Abraham Lincoln in the the Lyceum speech. It is effectively that the only way you conquer the United States is if we commit suicide by failing to pass these lessons on from one generation to the next. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Remind me, you did this to me, for me once before and it didn't sink in. Sometimes I need a, a repetition. Mr. Bobby Darren. Yes, Bobby Darren. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show with Hugh and Lewis Hallman as my in-studio guests as we, mostly, as we do most uh, Tuesday afternoons. Lewis, just as a, as, a, as a springboard to what you wanted to talk a little bit more about today, you had used the phrase American exceptionalism earlier. It may sound a little odd that um, a scholar as great and as esteemed, certainly by us, and I think most of this audience is Heather MacDonald, will look at certain indices in our society and culture of late, whether it's crime in certain cities or whether it's homeless in certain cities or whether it's declining academic scores in certain uh, studies or whether it's the issue that I'm so focused on with you all as well, uh, drug abuse statistics, she says it becomes increasingly difficult to talk about American exceptionalism when you look at how badly we are failing. But anyway, taking one of those was one of the issues you wanted to talk about, if I understand you right. Right. So so one of the 
pieces that has been coming out of the Republican Party, um, specifically, I think Trump's campaign uh, earlier this year ha- had a fairly large kerfuffle about it in one of the debates, was the issue of how we deal with uh, the uh, securing of our southern border, particularly with regards to the fentanyl crisis, in that, for those that are not aware, um, until recently, uh, most fentanyl precursors had been imported directly to the U.S. from China until a few years ago, uh, at which they started flowing over the southern border with the hypothesis uh, uh, largely seeming to be that China is uh, exporting chemical precursors to fentanyl to Mexico, where the cartels themselves are then engaging in the processing, refining, and transportation into the American market north. Um, The response then from some members of the Republican Party uh, is a call for uh, a military response into Mexico to try and get uh, the cartel operations under control. I can see the appeal of this from an emotional level. Now, we've been watching uh, what seems like an endless explosion of violence in Mexico uh, for about as long as I've been alive at this point. Um, the the real struggles with the, the Mexican drug cartels really did kick off in the early 90s, right around the time when I was born and entered into a, a fever pitch sort of in the early aughts and then have, have been sort of in a uh, a worsening equilibrium, I think, for about the last 18 years or so. A stable horror. Right. And, and we're currently at a point now where there are about 30,000 murders in Mexico every year, give or take. Um, staggering, staggering numbers. And so, you know, we're, we're, at a, we're at a position where there, there are many among us who are suggesting that the solution is then to deploy U.S. military power, go across the southern border, put troops on the grounds, and with a combination of direct action, intelligence work, airstrikes and the like, bringing the fight directly to the cartels to forcibly dismantle their operations. Now, that seems an appealing strategy on the face of it, but there are a number of problems with it. The the first parallel I would note is that we tried a similar strategy very recently in Afghanistan in the war on terror. Uh, Between 2017 and 2019, U.S. Special Forces were engaged in Afghanistan to destroy opium production on behalf of the Taliban uh, in that region. And over those two years, despite airstrikes, direct action, what have you, opium production in the region actually increased. The, the strategy failed. And so I'm not sure then that that is a direct uh, uh, recipe that we want to follow. There are some other complications that would arise as well. Mexico is now our largest trading partner, and turning the border into a battleground would seriously disrupt that, as well as imperil our relationships with what is now, at least nominally, an ally with whom we do not have the most uh, rosy past. The 30s and earlier show some dark uh, segments in Mexican-American history in which uh, U.S. forces uh, uh, had previously roamed around the country. That is perhaps not a pattern we want to repeat if we would like a stable, valuable, viable economic partnership with that part of the world for the foreseeable future. So what do we do instead? If we can't just send troops across the border and root them out how do we deal with, with the cartel problem? How do we deal with fentanyl production? How do we deal with the violence south of the border? I would argue that we actually have a successful playbook for this, these sorts of affairs, and that would be the, the Colombian model of the late 80s and early 90s with operations against the Medellin and Cali cartels, where we see the Colombians themselves, where, which at that time were engaged in, in extreme narco-terrorism uh, in Colombia, we see the Colombians themselves deal with the, the bulk of the work on the ground supported by 
USDEA and uh, other intelligence assets. Uh, th- this is similar to what we see sort of Delta in Force Ukraine. Was part of that. Yeah. It was, it was, yeah. absolutely. This, is, this, would be, this would be analogous to sort of the growing U.S. strategy. We're no longer 50% of the world's GDP, and so we cannot unilaterally take security action. We're now going to have to realize in the 21st century that the time has come to pair a Millikan strategic uh, uh, wherewithal with the boots on the grounds of committed strategic allies. And we need to lean into those allies, buy, get their buy-in, get their agreement, and create a combined front, uh, uh, force that then deals with the situation. Another approach we might take as well would be tying the permissiveness of our border activity of the, the Meaning trade. trade, NAFTA II, of, of our tariffs, of, our, of, our, of the openness of our manufacturing centers to Mexico, Two absolute drug seizures at the border. This this would be a lesson straight out of the Federalist Papers, where in dealing with troublesome uh, uh, people uh, to to get the the governed to to govern themselves, we need to obligate them to do so. We need to set the table of incentives so that it's not worth it for the cycle of violence and horror to just repeat endlessly. And if we simply shoot the guy who last sold the drugs, we do nothing to disrupt the lucrative market or stop the violence. Simply sending soldiers is insufficient. Felipe Calderon did this in 2006 in Mexico, and we saw thousands and thousands and thousands of of deaths as a result. Uh, The meltdown of the Los Zetas cartels resulted in the current equilibrium that we see now. Boots on the ground are not the simple solution. There needs to be a much more calculated, intelligent, thoughtful solution here. The irony being that uh, pairing those notions, I think, Lewis, uh, hearing your concepts for the first time, would be a page that we would better use with China. I belittled uh, President Biden a few weeks ago on the air here uh, about the fact that he somehow thinks it was a win to open negotiations with China to get them to stop uh, sending precursors and do what they can to stop sending the precursors. And uh, we discussed the fact that that should have been uh, a, a starting point, that until you stop this nonsense, sending chemicals to poison our youth, we will not engage with uh, in conversations with you about how we change the trading environment. Here's the issue with that. The CCP is a direct rival of our of our country, whereas the Mexican government is not necessarily. What we need to do is, is to motivate the Mexican government to act on our behalf against their own interests where they would be endangered going against the cartels. The way that we do that is by turning the pressure and turning the, the incentives against them. China, I don't think, will respond to that pressure in the same way. Agreed. We'll pick up on this in a few moments right after this commercial break. My guests are Lewis Hallman of Inside Analytics, LLC, Hugh Hallman, who is an attorney in town, former mayor, educator, and so many other things. Also, both of them occasional guest hosts. Haven't done that in a while. It's been a long time. Think, yeah, we've got to redo that. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show from the gyrations of Mr. Hallman Perea. It seems like you don't like all the music selection. There are some really great holiday songs, and I will say in this case Christmas songs, and some really awful ones, and that gets closer to the awful side. I got, I gave David one rule, which was not the standard right. stuff. I, I, I don't that. want what you're going to hear at the malls and in the grocery over store. Over and over and over. Over and over, and over again. again. I hear that. And, and so I don't object to the fact that we're getting to hear a whole bunch of stuff we haven't heard in a long time and go, yeah, that's why I don't play that one. <laughs> the phrase, it's not wrong, it's just different, isn't always true. It yeah. 
can be different and wrong. Yes. Okay. Correct. All right. Well, Lewis uh, outlined in the previous segment a great, um, a really great analysis in thinking about the crisis we have with uh, <clears throat> with the drug cartels and the poisoning of Americans at uh, record levels. Uh, and you made an interesting call back to what was done in the 80s and 90s, uh, particularly with allies like Colombia. Colombia um, had um, had a co- several cooperation agreements with the United States. Yep. And as opposed to us bringing in special forces, Delta Force, DEA, God love those guys and gals, uh, against their will, they welcomed it. They wanted our help in saving their country. Right. And we had a very serious mutuality with, and in fact, cities that you would have never thought to go to uh, have, uh, as a result of some of those great successes, become destination vacation spots that you see in some of the most elite travel magazines now. And what you see now also is a turnaround on on the economy and a a new starting point for South American manufacture. Right. So, one, we need a cooperative government. Which yes. is one missing element, uh, a cooperative government that, that wants to do something about it. Well, we, we at least need a government we can obligate or, or ab- coerce to cooperate. A- absolutely. The other thing is, and this really will dive into areas that you are far more familiar with than both of you are than I am, <clears throat> but this kind of tug and pull, maybe it's a corruption of say's law of supply and demand because what you are talking about is the supply problem with our drug problem in America. And while we hugely directed those kinds of resources into Central and South – into mostly Central America – uh, as a matter of foreign and national security policy, we did have uh, at the same time a very serious demand side programmatic working throughout the United States in country, uh, and it infused the entirety of the culture. Um, the idea that tens of thousands of Americans would be dying every year from drug overdose would have been unheard of in those years. And we are at that point now. But we suffused throughout the country prevention messaging. One thing Hillary Clinton said, and it's the only thing she ever said that I think I agree with, was several years ago when talking about this very serious issue of um, drug deaths and drug poisoning fatalities, was that she said, there is certainly a supply problem, but if Americans weren't craving this stuff and buying this stuff, that would seriously reduce the initia- the initiation of the supplies, and I'll let you take it from there. But we did do it. We reduced drug use in this country over 65% in that very time period you're outlining. And the, the piece I want to pick up on is Lewis is pointing out, again, the, the supply-side problem that we face. If you can drive up the cost, it helps the demand-side right. piece of it. It shifts the, the curves. But, Seth, I think you need to take greater credit for what you are currently doing, what a group of us are currently doing to try to get that prevention messaging going again, because it is exactly the data that you talk about uh, more full-throatedly, and I will pick it up right this moment, that we have surpassed the height of drug abuse in this country in the last year beyond what it was in the late 1970s. And with people like Bill Bennett and others working diligently on this problem, we reversed that trend and reduced it significantly. And we have to have both. So while Lewis is articulating that it probably doesn't work to try to send troops unilaterally to the south side of the Mexican border uh, in a hostile action uh, that 
causes us likely much bigger problems. We have to also have a domestic policy that makes sense. And having New York and California just saying, you know, use with friends, start small, that's craziness. Yeah. And getting the prevention message going at the same time that we work on the kinds of things Lewis is thinking through it, as a note for the listeners, we're talking about this out loud, thinking about it. We need your help in thinking about it, too. So, you know, we'll, we'll uh, have yeah. to take some calls on this eventually and, and think through what our listeners are thinking about how we approach this problem. We have a website. We have an organization. Could not do it without you. Could not do it without our friend Steve Moat. Could not do it without our friends Jeff Taylor, our other friends Steve and Ashley. The stop starts here.org for more, for more information on that. But just to give a sense of scale of what we're talking about, everyone remembers the AIDS crisis. Everyone, you could not turn your head without hearing about an AIDS march or an AIDS concert or some kind of effort to work on the AIDS problem. Worst year of AIDS deaths in this country, 1995, 50,000 deaths. Country's grown a third. We're more than doubling the deaths with drugs. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. That's the scale. And instead of killing 78-year-old people, these are uh, 50-year-olds. You're off the air, gentlemen. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back. Do you approve? Does that song get I just thought it was more? wonderful watching your eyes roll back into your head as you had to think about what that was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's a few confusions I do make from time to time. We were just making the point right before the break, and I'll let you pick up on it, Lewis, uh, that when we want to do a serious public health campaign, we know how to do it. And this country was energized and activated over the AIDS crisis circa 1985, 86, up through 1996, 97, 98, um, with the worst worst year being 1995. We lost 50,000 souls that year. The country was a little bit smaller. We're losing 111,000 Americans to uh, to drug poisonings. And you see nothing like this, nothing like this attention, nothing like this focus. The country grew by about a third drug deaths have grown surpassed AIDS by at least twice. And it just seems to me that if this country were serious about this as a public health crisis, the way it knows how to be when it wants to be, it can do something about it. Well, and, and, and to your point, Seth, um, it's fascinating to me that, w- you know, we, we had all of the, the brouhaha about COVID, which in, in terms of the numbers of deaths was indeed about double per year the number of deaths we see from drug overdoses. But in fact, I don't know that we care about the absolute number of deaths. We care about the actuarial number of human years lost, the amount of lost life in total. And drug overdoses kill a very different segment of the population than COVID-19 did. It's, it's right. more similar, I would argue, to what the AIDS young, epidemic young did. Young adults. Young it adults. is. It is it's indeed. Adults, it's right. young adults, people in their prime. Without comorbidities. Right. Right. And and keeping in mind, uh, Lewis, I don't think should be implied to say that he didn't care about the lives that were lost during no, COVID <laughs> and, and, and that we had seniors who were dying as a result. But we also have to remind people, although those who listen to this show know what that theme is, and that is dying with COVID is very different from dying from COVID. And our manipulative CDC and the others playing with the data were reporting as COVID deaths, anybody who died with COVID, including from gunshot wounds. And so, uh, you know, the the actual numbers of people who succumbed to death because of COVID uh, was much smaller uh, than uh, has been reported. And I, we're not deniers here. The point being that, as Lewis is saying, you've got 100 and 
10,000 young people dying. Yes, there are some people in the 30s and 40s, but the, the reality is most of the people we're talking about are older than 12, but younger than 40. And a huge chunk of them in their 20s and 30s. And every single one of us knows someone who has died as a result of a drug poisoning, uh, and most of which were unintentional. One of the other things that's been fascinating. We've never, just to coda on that, if I might, we have never, as far as I can remember in history of public health, ever counted deaths the way we counted COVID deaths. Correct. It was a very, very unique disease that was very privileged to get so much attention and so much money and be manipulated so well to test the theory of can we get people to agree to become sheep and lock themselves down? Sorry. Go ahead. One other piece, though, on on the the drug epidemic, um, we haven't talked about one of the very largest contributing factors to this, uh, which is our own medical and scientific establishment uh, uh, massively pushing the use of very, very powerful opiates for uh, pain management and the growth of that as an entire industry. And what's fascinating is that if you were the type of person who is convinced by such rhetoric as follow the science and listen to the scientists, well, these are the very people who drove us right off the cliff that, that we've been falling uh, over for the last two decades. And Lewis is and, not overstating that. We'll get to the detail on it. And and what's what's remarkable is that the people doing the research to to create these opiates, their only motive is a profit incentive, right? The, the the messaging, the societal impulses around this have become so distorted just because of the money. There isn't even a moral element that is distorting the incentives of all of these academics and scientists. Well, I'm, I'm and can you imagine? On hold on, hold on. Can you imagine what would happen? If there were a cause where they would all, they not only had tremendous profit incentive, but also were feeling morally righteous about presenting data around something like, I don't know, climate change or an apocalyptic uh, uh, death culty scenario. Can you imagine what would happen if the same kind of monomaniacal experts that that through profit motive propagated the opiate epidemic were let loose to have trillions of dollars of control over the entire economy or the world? Or the world. If, if they were For armed the world, yeah. to unilaterally make every choice about consumption and expenditure and development with trillions of dollars of federal infrastructure, well, we're living in that world right now. Yes, in, all in the name of climate, uh, saving us from the climate. Uh, but I want to actually object to a comment you made with respect to the opioid addiction. Yes, there is massive amount of money in it, and we saw drug companies pushing that narrative, but they were not the initiators of it. People who are old enough remember being presented by their physician with a little piece of paper that had 10 smiley faces on it. What is your pain level today? And in hospitals and doctor's offices, that's where it started. It was we are here to make people's lives better and manage their pain. Show me where your pain is. It became an indicator of diagnosis. That was the indicator of quality of life. And that one feature then was determinative of then here, take this. And it was all opioid based. And we ended up addicting an entire generation of people with the smiley face to get opioids. And I will brag on somebody, your mother was at the cutting edge of saying, what on earth are we doing? She shut this stuff down and got that narrative changed over a decade ago here in Arizona to say, this is nuts. We are addicting an entire generation of people. 
continuously. I mean, and, and I'm really over understating it. A generation meaning an entire 20 years of people who have been introduced from teenagers to senior citizens. Here's your solution to the quality of your life. Take this opioid. Isn't it fascinating that this emerged as a method of pain reduction? It's, it's as if if you reduce your entire moral calculus to the single aspect of harm reduction, of feeling less pain as a populace, which, as we know, is the guiding moral principle of the left. If that is your sole constraint, then you will create a deranged, lunatic, and frankly, terrifyingly dystopian world. And and that's why we sit here on uh, uh, every Tuesday to discuss what we might do to prevent that. Uh, if we want to end up on climate change, I would note. I am beginning to gather, and I'm going to drag Lewis into this, the data reflecting sort of the kind of climate change pieces uh, that are uh, ubiquitous now in the left's narrative and contrasting that or, or pairing that with what has gone on over the last 10,000 years to demonstrate uh, sort of how deranged this has gotten. Maybe you can tie that together for our closing. Perhaps I can. Perhaps. <laughs> so good having you back. It is a b delight and honor. All right. We'll be right back. It's a wall of sound, Hugh. It's the, it's the, it's the well-known, well-traversed, well-respected wall of sound. I just like to remind people that that was the B-side of a record. Oh, really? Yes. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer by the Singing Cowboy was, uh, uh, help me, owned the Angels. At Autry, Gene. Yeah, Gene Autry. Um, the A side I can't now remember, and that was the B side no written kidding. by a fellow. Yeah, and he he went ahead and recorded it, and it was the B side and became a huge hit. And now we're all stuck with it. I only learned recently that Rudolph was recently developed. I think he is a figure of the of the of the twentieth century. Oh yeah, no, yeah. it was nineteen fifty. Yeah, something the guy like that. made up the whole concept yeah. in writing the song. And okay. I've forgotten the, the author's name, uh, but it is sort of reminiscent of uh, about a boy. The uh, the son who's inherited the wealth from his father's one-hit wonder. <laughs> All right. Wrap up everything we've talked about today, which is to say wrap up everything. Oh, jeepers. So uh, that's a huge task. But I think what we, the arc we've described is that uh, those of us who care about the philosophy and policy need to keep in mind that there's a, an end to that, a reason for that. And that is because the philosophy, uh, the, the, the culture that developed here in these United States developed organically out of the people who came here, the people who were here, the notions that developed, and that Western culture that got brought over primarily from, from uh, Great Britain, but also France and other European countries that had adopted the concepts that had developed out of the Middle East. Yeah, we've talked about that before, the fact that the Kodo Hammurabi and a whole lot of stuff came out of Baghdad in the Middle East that was pulled into the philosophy that gave rise to the Constitution of the United States and everything that's spoken of in the Federalist Papers, that we have to start passing that on to the next generation. And the current kerfluffle about what's going on in American universities over the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, stuff and the three presidents uh, who were testifying in Congress badly because they couldn't identify that calling for the genocide of all Jews on a campus should be viewed as a bad thing. And they couldn't quite articulate that sentence until after uh, they realized uh, too late that now their donors and other people were going to start making some big deal about it. Well, 
the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is that is just the skin, the very surface, the thinnest of surface of what's gone on in our universities for the last 50 years. And professor by professor has been instituted into uh, these universities to teach that way, that my truth is what matters, that there is no objective whole truth. And to call on Seth's monologue, there is an objective truth. For those of us who uh, grew up with the notion of uh, natural rights, that there is some right and some wrong that we can all discern if we think about it, talk about it, and understand it. And that my truth is not a way to govern, and it is also the death of this society. We need to be wary of that and listen to the controversy going on right now about the three main universities because it is ubiquitous. Hugh Holman, Lewis Holman, Robert L. May, and Montgomery Ward, thank you all very much. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 